The University of Connecticut is a pioneering body of research and innovation. This podcast brings you the stories, the motivations, the passions possessed by the people behind this success. Welcome to UConn in vivo. Our guest today is David Miller, a legendary professor of psychological sciences who worked at UConn for 37 years. He was one of the first to break into the field of podcasting. He revolutionized classroom education through incorporation of multimedia with lectures, and he was the recipient of numerous Teaching Excellence Awards. He's currently the vocalist, guitarist, and mix artist for the Sultans of Stores Band of retired UConn professors, and just an all-around great guy. Here now is a clip from one of their songs. He's a real nowhere man, sitting in his nowhere land, making all his nowhere plans for nobody. Thank you for joining us. Thank you for Victor, how's it going? <laughs> uh, so let's start and talk about how you were one of the first podcasters at UConn with iCube and yeah. what, your, what your podcast was and the goal of it and how it uh, became to be. Okay, the podcast kind of emerged out of a review session I was doing for my large introductory psychology class. Attached to that class was a one-credit course that was taught by somebody from uh, the School of Education on teaching skills, but it was tailored for school, for uh, students rather, in my class because he knew how I taught. Mm -hmm. So he knew exactly what to teach them in terms of getting them sort of up to speed and taking notes and studying for the way that I conducted my class. But it was a very small enrollment class, maybe only about 25 students. And, uh, and that was Max, so he didn't often get 25 students. But I went in to do review sessions in that class before each of my exams. And it's the only review sessions I've ever done, just for that group of students. Sure. But, you know, I had just gotten my iPod Shuffle, <laughs> if anybody remembers those So things. what year is this? This is, this yeah. is uh, I think the Shuffle was 2004 thereabouts. 2004? Because I started the podcast in 2005, okay. so I'm just trying to go back in time. And it, via the Shuffle... I discovered something called podcasts, and I'm like, oh, what the hell is that? Mm -hmm. <laughs> so, you know, I checked that out. The iTunes store was in its infancy, so, right. you know, mm -hmm. you couldn't get a whole lot of information back then. But I found out what they were, and I was really more interested in the technology podcasts that were up, the very few ones. But I did a search term for psychology. Nothing came up except for something very obscure in China. And I couldn't reach it. China, right. so I, I didn't know what it was. So um, I said, wow, so there's a big void here. And I got to do this review session anyway. I had my, I forgot which portable Mac I had at the time, maybe a, a G4 or something like that. And so it had a microphone built in. So I was going to do the review session anyway. So I said, why don't I just activate the mic and record it and figure out some way of making it available to the entire class because it's only intended right. for this small group of students. Mm -hmm. So I did that. I brought it in. And in the interim, I went to Apple's site and I learned more about podcasts and how to get them up online and stuff like that. I bought a book called Podcasting for Dummies. <laughs> you know those dummies? Yeah, yep. oh, yeah. They're not for dummies. I mean, you got to know books, stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I soon discovered that. But I worked my way through that, and I figured out how to submit to the iTunes store. 
and they had to review the application. Mm -hmm. They don't just grant it automatically. Yep. Had to wait a couple of days, and then I got the okay to go ahead and put this podcast up. And then I had to think, oh my God, I got to think of a name for it. <laughs> and Apple recommended, think of some non-copyright music or something that's brief to introduce. Yeah. I mean, you guys have what? It sounds like a heartbeat almost. What is yes. It? So yeah, because in vivo, it's you know, you know studying a living organism. Yes. So what gives life? You know, the heartbeat. Boom, boom. Makes boom, perfect boom, sense. Boom, boom. Yeah. So anyway, I couldn't think of anything I really liked, so I wrote this uh, this hip hop song, <laughs> which I, is phenomenal. Yeah. If we do say so ourselves, it it's called Psycho Babble, <laughs> and it's very short. And so we started the podcast, I think, with the instrumental version only, because I was doing all the mixing in Apple's Garage Band. I took mm -hmm. my vocals out, and then after the podcast, we go out with the entire thing with the. Uh, the words and lyrics. Sure, it's sure. Stupid song. Anyway, <laughs> so it worked. And so I started my very first podcast was just this review session. But then I thought, I need to expand this somehow because this is really cool. I thought, oh my God. Because I started out in college wanting to go into radio broadcasting. But radio broadcasting required a more bassy voice back in the 60s sure. than my voice, which is pretty much like the way it is right now. Mm -hmm. I would have had no career in radio broadcasting. <laughs> so I figured, Oh my God, I can make it happen Podcast now mm -hmm. in connection mm -hmm. with my job as a yeah. university professor. And so uh, it was all kind of like gelling. It was all coming together. So I thought, okay, so I got to think of a name for the podcast. I, uh, I just struggled with that. I called, So I figured, okay, we'll call it iCube. I had to make sure there wasn't any other podcast called mm -hmm. that mm -hmm. in any other domain like yep. technology. And there wasn't. Apple had this computer that didn't do very well called the Cube, but it wasn't even called the iCube. So no copyright issues. Nice. There were patent issues. So... I was thinking iCube has three eyes. It's like iCubed, yes, but yes. without the D. Mm -hmm. So what would the three eyes be? So what's it for? <laughs> it's my general psychology class. Students just call it intro. So, ah, issues in intro. There's my three eyes there right there. Mm -hmm. So it was iCube colon issues in intro. And it, it was boring. And so there were, in fact, three parts to the podcast. The main part was a discussion, very informal, just like what we're doing right here, mm -hmm. with students who ever wanted to attend could come. I found a room, I found an, a place, an hour, you know, all this stuff. Once a week, we would do this. And I said, anyone who wants to show up and wants to ask me questions, because it was a very large class. At the time, it was about 300-plus students. Oh, wow, yeah. So it can be intimidating, again, mostly freshmen. Eight in the morning back then, mm -hmm. so that's, that makes it even worse. So, yeah, people started showing up. And, of course, this whole thing is optional. I told them, you know, you're not going to get any credit for this. It's just, you know, we get, yep. get a chance to talk. I get to know you. You get to know me. That could have future ramifications in a good direction, hopefully. You need letters of recommendation from a professor. You know, I, if you're one of 300 students, there's not much I can say sure. about you at all. So this would be a good way to, you know, get a lot done. So people started to tap into that, and they started to show up. And so the main part, again, was this discussion that lasted anywhere from usually about 40 to 50 minutes. And then there were two other eyes I had to deal with. So one of them I called a precast. And what that turned out to be was I would activate this on Apple about two days before each of my classes. I taught twice a week, Tuesdays and Thursdays. And I would give a brief overview of the main points that the next lecture was going to cover. I am, just to diverge a little bit, very comfortable with lecturing. Yep. I am not good with all this now and wow, break into group kind of stuff, which works great for some people. 
great for them. <laughs> I can't do it. Sure. So I straight lecture class. Mm-hmm. So I covered the main points. And whoever wanted to listen to that, fine. It would serve as maybe a rough outline that they could take notes by. And then the third part was the postcasts. If there's a precast, there has to be a balance. If my universe does not get balanced, (laughs) I get very nervous. So I call that postcast. We didn't do a lot of those. I used those primarily if I felt I didn't do a really good job of explaining a difficult concept in class. I could go back to my office, do it right there into my microphone, and call that the, uh, you know, a postcast. So there weren't too many of those. Right. So... That's how we got started in the fall of 2005, and podcasting was still. In yeah, this is cutting edge. This yeah. is you're at the you know start the of right? yeah. all. I mean, it's blown up recently over the past few years, but even probably from 2005 until I don't know 2011, 12, mm-hmm. it still was not tapped into really that much. I know, yeah, and in fact, I guess it started in the fall of 2004 is where people started yeah, putting up that's podcasts. Early. You know, the reason I remember that is I know a podcaster who has a great podcast. I'm a Macintosh guy, mm-hmm. so it's called the MacCast, and I subscribe to that. I love that podcast, and I, I actually met him. I went out there, and we had dinner together, and <laughs> interestingly enough, oh my gosh, on my way driving here today, I'm driving and I'm listening to myself on his podcast. <laughs> That's weird, right? <laughs> it's something that came up recently. You're like, wait, I know that If person. you're not suspecting it, it's really, really weird. I'm saying, wait a minute. Who am I talking? I'm, am I hearing things? Yeah, who's the smart guy? <laughs> right? yeah. Wow, that's that so smart. Voice. I wish I could so, talk like that. From what I read, though, your podcast started to reach audiences that you didn't expect. Oh, gosh, yes. Right. That was a big surprise. First of all, the whole thing was optional for students in my class. Listen to it, don't listen to it. I don't care. But then I started getting letters from around the country and ultimately from around the world about because it is on iTunes. Mm-hmm. So people were finding it and they were listening to it, subscribing to it. And it had some really interesting effects. One of the more interesting cases was a psychiatric nurse down in Florida. Uh, he wrote to me because he had a patient that was showing some really strange symptoms that none of the professionals were really able to diagnose totally accurately. Nothing really seemed to fit. And I was talking about something, and actually this was in my second podcast series that came a year later Mm -hmm. called Animal Behavior Podcast, because my specialty is animal behavior. So I did one for that class as well. So he was listening to that, and he said that something that I was describing that occurs in non-human organisms fit what this person was doing. And so he looked into this further and found that this is exactly what was going on. He talked to the, uh, the doctors about it that were there, and they seemed to agree with it. So uh, anyway, they totally rediagnosed his condition wow. as a result. Of, it was basically a passing comment <laughs> that I made in this one particular podcast. That's, That's remarkable. Your podcast led to a diagnosis. I know. <laughs> yeah, I hope <laughs> from animal person, behavior to human. I hope the patient did well. Yeah, <laughs> I have no idea. Right. And then I was getting uh, from Germans. German graduate students actually were writing to me on several occasions, saying that they found the content interesting, but they were learning more English as a result of it, and they were listening to it primarily to learn better English, which puts the pressure on 
on me <laughs> right. to stop, you know, cut out all the ums and ahs and all this kind of stuff in between the words, which I'm really bad at. And the slang and the, yeah. you know. All that stuff, yeah. <laughs> but that's true English, right? I mean, if we're going to talk about learn that too. And I lived in dialogue. Germany doing research for a year and a half. Right. So I kind of know what their sensibilities are in sure. terms of humor. It's very different from ours, actually. <laughs> so, you know, let's not even go there. <laughs> but uh, so, yeah, and some other things came through as well from different places in the country and the world, which were pretty interesting. So, yeah, I had no idea that this was going to happen. I was totally and very sure. grateful that it had this effect. Now, I just read about, um, I think you had a chapter in a book in 2017 about how this product allowed you to combat the idea of rewinding during a lecture, yes. of going back to revisit a topic that somebody else may have already grasped and therefore they lose attention because this person who did not follow is now having you stop your dialogue to revisit a previous situation. Right. So did you have the intention of this podcast, these episodes, to alleviate that issue in your classroom already, or was this a side effect that just happened to be a positive outcome as well? No, I meant for that to happen. Yeah, yeah that was intentional. What happened in those later years is I stopped doing audio podcasts and I turned them into screencasts. So now there's a video component. And we did away with the student discussion. What happened throughout the years, I was getting fewer student participants in that. And the ones that came were not asking the best questions in the world that mm -hmm. I thought were helpful, either to the student that asked them or any, certainly anybody listening. So I was getting a little bit dismayed. And we had already done that for so many years. I thought, OK, what direction can I take mm -hmm. this in now? So I decided to do screencasts. So they have the uh, video component along with the audio. And so I create those in advance. And again, they match the topics that I'm on in class roughly. Because the way I taught, I didn't have it partitioned such that today we're going to cover this topic and it's only going to be today. Thursday we're going to cover this one. It's like one long flow, one novel, and sure. takes the pressure off of me to try to race through a particular topic just to fit it in mm -hmm. to one class period. So again, roughly corresponding to where we would be in class. And so what I would do is I would create a basic overview, but in much more detail than those precasts were, and now with a lot of the video screens that I would be using in class. I was advocating teaching in multimedia, and I started doing that basically in 1995 with an Apple product called HyperCard that didn't last very long. I created probably at UConn, definitely at UConn, the very first self-paced course in animal behavior, uh, creating it in HyperCard. But networking wasn't around back then. What is HyperCard? So HyperCard was, <laughs> the, they called it HyperCard because it was sort of like a metaphor for a stack of cards. Sure. Right, so you could create anything you want on each card, okay? Uh, you could put audio in, you could put video in, which back then was super crude and mm -hmm. so pixelated, but you could do it. You could put text in. I put a button in that allowed students to take notes right there on the screen and then export them to Microsoft wow. Word or any other word processing program. And so students had to sign up for computer time in order to access this program because we had no networking. So that worked out really, really well until we started to get higher enrollments because I could only offer that to a maximum of 10 students per semester. And ultimately, my animal behavior class grew to over 300. So yeah, that only lasted for two years before we had to open mm -hmm. it up. But I used HyperCard to create the first lecture version of that class, but now we were back in the classroom. So basically, that's what got me into screencasting, per se, because I said, well, okay, I'm going to use 
similar screens or in some cases the exact screens that I was going to be using in class because I never talked from notes. I just always had visuals up there. I hate bulleted text. Yep. Try to minimize that every which way. And so students really had to make the connection between what I was saying and what was on the screen. And I also used a lot of humor in my class, context relevant, but sometimes a little bit too much. <laughs> so, <laughs> Do you think that helps facilitate learning and memory? Students told me that. Yeah. Yeah. I had a student once that was in my introductory class. I saw him as a senior. He took my class as a freshman. Mm -hmm. He came up to me on the street somewhere in Yukon, and he told me, you know, I remember this concept because of that Beavis and Butthead clip <laughs> that you showed. I said, oh my God, it worked. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah. So this, it, they, they yeah. were screencasts now in animal behavior right. and for general psychology, and I changed the name to Psychological Science, so we went from iCube to Psychological Science. And then, I mean, just the way you're teaching, right, this humor-based approach, the screencasts, the videos with long-form dialogue of you lecturing with animations behind you, no text, no bullets. When did you figure out that this was your style of teaching? Was it evolution over time, or was it just straight from the beginning, I don't like this old-school style of teaching, I'm going to come up with my own one? I would call it more of a revolution. Yeah. <laughs> now, evolution is Ever. very slow, as yeah. we all know. So, no, uh, I had started to sit through professional lectures at conferences and stuff with all this bulleted text and usually a picture, if there was a picture, that had no meaning in terms of what the text was about. It's like, there's this blank space, so we're going to throw up a picture <laughs> there, find a nice pretty picture of Venice sure. or whatever. Ever. And, you know, it just, it was so boring. And I looked around the room at, in these meetings and saw people were really, like myself, getting totally disengaged. We had a speaker, a relatively well-known speaker, come to our department. And I was really looking forward to hearing what she had to say. And I couldn't focus on it because her visuals were so ridiculous. Mm -hmm. In fact, I ended up recreating them using different contexts because I've done a lot of faculty lectures on class about the proper way to go about this kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. Get rid of the bulleted text, go to more multimedia. And so I use that as an example of what never to do. <laughs> and so it, it had it that effect sense. on me, but yep. I, I know nothing about what she was talking about. It was just too distracting because of her visuals. So no, I decided back probably when I did the hypercard, that's when I decided, okay, we got to do something totally right. different now. Hypercard wasn't as amenable to that as PowerPoint was. PowerPoint, on the other hand, both for Mac and PC, never handled multimedia very well. Mm. You could have everything yeah. show up fine, and then you show it in the classroom, and you get a big X, right? Even when you do the right thing of embedding it in the same level, the mm. same root level as the presentation, there were glitches every which way. So I ultimately migrated over to Apple's Keynote, which is what Steve Jobs actually had created for him for his, um, his addresses and stuff that uh -huh. he did. And then they went public with it. And they kept developing it, further developing it, year after year mm -hmm. after year. And it got to the point where, oh my God, now I can use the new version, which I think was version six or something yeah. like that. And that worked perfectly well. And I haven't looked back since. I've erased PowerPoint <laughs> from my computer. You've mentioned doing like seminars for these other faculty members. Yes. Like, have you seen more widespread adoption of those? That's definitely something that I, as a student, think I would be interested in having. Like, it certainly would be much more engaging. Like, do you see adoption of those? Kind uh, of faculty things? and graduate students, because mm -hmm. it was for them as well, okay. told me that, yes, they were going to start doing more of this. But, you know, I was like a mad person, because when I do something, I just go ahead and dive right in. And I created all this stuff, like, 
all at once for mm -hmm. the entire like over the summer for the entire semester wow. and obviously got very little else done as a result of that and you know I told them don't be insane like I am work it in gradually first of all see if it works for you if you can't do humor don't go there that that's pathetic <laughs> right. if it's you not can't. for everybody oh gosh no yeah. no and that would be distracting mm -hmm. if they can't pull that off so I said, you know, try a little bits of this, that, and the other in terms of multimedia. See what works best for you. And if none of it works, just go back to doing what you were doing. This right. is not for everybody. But be aware that, you know, tr you still need to try to minimize all those bullets on screen. Yeah, I mean, I think I've seen for sure that even over the past few years, many more professors are open to incorporating media and visuals. And they're removing more text and adding more attractive ways of teaching mm -hmm. their point. Case studies through videos on YouTube of a specific disease, so you can actually see a pathology in a patient rather than just reading on a text, dystonia or muscle weakness paralysis. Right. right? It becomes more of a, a meaningful point you're making because you visualize and you connect and you say, this is actually happening X, Y, Z, right? And yeah, like you're saying, you'd be able to remember it better. I definitely think that's taken off. Yeah, one thing that comes to mind is I was describing radioglial cells in my general psych class. Basically, they are cells that go across layers of the cortex, and neurons will use the long axons of these radioglial cells as a pathway. They literally wrap themselves around these axons and migrate from lower levels mm -hmm. of the cortex to where they're ultimately going to end up at higher cortical sure. levels. And so I did an animation of that, very crude, but it kind of worked. But then I found an actual film that a neuroscientist did, a very short clip, showing this actually happened right. with a neuron following an axon of a radioglial cell. So I showed that as well. And, you know, if that doesn't drive the point home, then nothing will. <laughs> yeah, I mean, and everybody in the class, right, if you have a class of 300 students, everybody's going to have different learning styles. Yes. So incorporating humor with visualization, with techniques, with everything, it starts to parse this larger group into one homogenous style of presenting material. But it also really demonstrates that you cared a lot about your students' education, right? You didn't take it for granted that you had this position as a lecturer. You really wanted to get through to these kids. Mm -hmm. Did you always have that passion for teaching? Or once you were up there, did you realize, hey, I need to take this seriously? Um, that's a good question. I had a seven-year postdoc that was research only in North Carolina before coming up here, and 15 of those months were actually in Germany. Mm -hmm. So there was virtually no teaching other than talks that I gave at conferences, and that was all research-based. So when I came here, I was asked to teach a methods course in our department, and I agreed to do that because, you know, well, hey, it's a job. i got to do this, <laughs> and that they need me for that. I taught it one semester, and last day of class, I went into our department head. I said, I will do anything you want. Get me out of this course. I never <laughs> want to do this again. Uh, I really did not enjoy that. And he said, oh, okay, how would you like to teach general psychology? I'll do it. I'll, I've never done it, sure. but I'll do it. Don't worry about it. And it turned out at the time we were teaching in Vondermaden, and they had a smaller stage and 200 more seats than they have now. There were 700 seats. Wow. They were all filled, all of them in this dark environment without <laughs> tablets on the desks and it just it was it uh -huh. was a recital hall for God's sakes. There would be harpsichords on stage, <laughs> musical instruments. And so every night that fall semester, the rest of the fall, 
I just would wake up in a cold sweat thinking about this because I don't know if it shows now, it probably doesn't, but I was a very shy guy. I was the kid in class, including college, that never asked a question, <laughs> never raised my hand, and froze if somebody ever called on me. That was me, <laughs> okay? And so... You've really um, gotten out of that. Th yeah, this it burned that it out of me instantly. <laughs> yep. And from day one in that class, because I think I got rid of it in the fall semester with all of these sleepless nights, day one I felt like I was home. I said, this is so cool. Uh, even with 700 students in a horrible environment, this is so cool. Mm -hmm. So I was really taking it seriously from my second semester on. Yeah, I mean, it's a power that you don't really understand until you're up there. Mm -hmm. 700 pairs of eyes looking at you. Yeah. Right? And now that, you're making me nervous. Sorry. sorry. <laughs> <laughs> Bringing me flashbacks. Yeah. No, but it's true, right? I mean, I had my first foyer into teaching uh, a few semesters ago, just TAing a lab section for the PNB anatomy physiology class. Mm -hmm. And once I, that I was up there, I was like, oh, God, I'm now accountable for this, the education of 40 students. Right? It's more impactful than you can grasp in your head until you're truly up there and teaching. But at the same time, it becomes so rewarding once you get through to people. Right? I don't know if you've checked out your Rate My Professor website at all, oh, but have. you have some quite great reviews, I would say. And some not so great. But yeah. you're always going to get a few, <laughs> yeah. right? But I think the bias towards the positive side of reviews, as well as the awards you've received, teaching excellence awards, nominations, things like that, demonstrates... You know, you really tapped into the minds of these students and you were really successful at driving home certain techniques, concepts, and teaching in a very meaningful and motivating way. And I don't know if you appreciate the reward of that. Oh, I do. Yeah, yeah. Th thank you for that, by the way. Yeah, I, um, I mean, the rewards are great. The most valuable rewards in my mind are the ones that actually came directly from students, right. student organizations. <laughs> I had one award in my later years from College of Liberal Arts and Sciences and the dean, at the time it was Ross McKinnon before he left UConn, and as he was giving me the award, he said, you know, I've been to your office and you don't have any wall space left. This is going to be your last award <laughs> because you, you can't put them up anymore. Right. <laughs> oh, you're right. <laughs> but it's a positive feedback loop that you're doing the right thing, yeah, right? And it's, yeah. you know, the effort you're putting into making a single slide is actually working. Right, and it's got to be motivating in itself. I did a presentation. It was a TEDx talk here at UConn. Yep. Yep. It took me like four hours or so for one slide that <laughs> occupied just seconds of screen time in class. But first of all, when I start doing that, hours can pass, and I won't even know sure. it. I will not know it. And I'm totally focused, absolutely focused on this until it's done the way I want it to be done. And I will finesse it and keep going back and revise mm -hmm. and re-revise because I'm crazy <laughs> when it comes to this stuff. I do the same with the music that I mix right now. It's, sure. Yeah, it's just kind of transferred over to that domain. But yeah, so I did it because I felt that it worked and I felt that students were benefiting and learning by it. At the end of the semester, of course, we have these anonymous course evaluations. Uh, you can add questions. I always added questions about the screencasts in particular. And some students said, it was fortunately a small percentage, that they were watching them occasionally, but they didn't feel that they were all that helpful. But 76% thought that they were extremely helpful on a rating scale of sure. 1 to 10. They were like in the 9s and 10s side of the 9 to 10. That's been very gratifying. And I was getting those results semester after semester. Yeah. And that was enough because it's so much work. Yeah, that's and what I'm saying. I, it, it was, I needed time to know spent. that the time was being spent in a way that people were benefiting by it because I liked doing it. 
but I had a lot of other things to do. I was associate head of our department for 11 years, and at the time, we were the largest department at UConn with about 1,600 majors, wow. and I was the undergraduate guy. The buck stopped at my desk with mm -hmm. all these undergraduates. And so I had that over my head while I was teaching and doing these screencasts for two classes. And I had to make sure that everything that I'm doing at this point is going to be beneficial to someone. Otherwise, I need to start cutting things out. Yeah. So your introduction into lecturing, though, was preceded by, like you had mentioned previously, stints in research and academic research, specifically animal behavior studies, right, and vocal acoustic studies, song calls and birds, things right. like that, right? right? So what happened with that? Well, so I started this research in the field in Raleigh, which was automatically kind of a weird thing for a psychologist to be doing field research. Mm -hmm. I, certainly a lot were doing it, but, you know, mainstream psychology, it's all lab-based and stuff like that, yeah. and mostly rats. So <laughs> that never enticed me. I was never interested in that. So I had an opportunity to go to North Carolina at a research lab where there was this fairly well-known researcher who needed some field work done for his own lab research. And he had started the field work, but had sort of moved that stuff into the lab because they needed to do playback tests. This was all with ducklings. And so he needed me to go out there and record more calls from different birds on nests. And so I thought, oh, this is great, I can do that. So I did that, and that got me into bioacoustics, by the way, because I had to analyze all these calls acoustically with all kinds of devices. I really enjoyed that. That was a lot of fun. And I ended up doing some laboratory work as well, but most of my focus there was field work. When I went to Germany, I had a grant from the German government, a place called the Alexander von Humboldt Foundation, which gives like up to 200 grants a year to non-Germans to come to Germany, find a sponsor at a major research university, and do your work there for up to two years. Sure. I was there for 15 months. And that was a really beneficial experience as well. There I was working with zebra finches. Prior to that, I was working mostly with ducklings, jungle fowl, bobwhite quail. People who know me at conferences know me from this one paper <laughs> I published on zebra finches from Germany. But it was a solo authored paper in Nature, and that's why. Right. Anytime you need a scientific reputation, publish in Nature. nature sure. Science works through <laughs> <That'll> Nature. <laughs> and so people kept sending me grant proposals for zebra finches. I said, oh, please, I can't keep doing this. Mm -hmm. So in any event, that was beneficial. And again, kept me going in bioacoustics. Came back to the same research lab from Germany, because I still didn't have a real job. So I'm on soft grant money and then kept applying for jobs and UConn came along. It was between UConn and uh, University of Washington in Seattle and it's gorgeous out there. I've spent a month out there. I love it. I would have hung on to see if they were going to take me except they were like three months behind mm. the process Oof. from UConn. So I said, okay, I'm going to UConn. Can't be that bad. But you had a research lab here, correct? Or oh, no? yeah. 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 And so at what point did you stop doing research here and start focusing all your efforts on educating? Okay, that didn't happen by choice. Oh, okay. um, I'll try to make this brief. Yeah, long story short, they did some building renovations in our laboratories. All the labs in the site building were downstairs in the basement, as was mine. And I had acoustically sealed everything. I put things up on the walls to make no echoes or anything, I no room-to-room -room mm -hmm. transmission, had all the alarms taken out and put in with visual fire alarms, all this kind of stuff. And um, they needed to relocate the ventilation system. 
and I had warned them in advance that please do not put the fan above my area because I was afraid that it would drown out signal-to-noise ratio, <laughs> the vocalizations that I was using in my tests. And when we went to reoccupy the lab, sure enough, the fans were right above my lab. They said they had no choice. I think they probably could have arranged something else. They had no place to move me to. And so at that point, my research came to a screeching halt, which was too bad because we were in the middle of asking some what I thought were really important questions. And it just stopped dead. And I was and am. I was the only person working on this problem in the world, as far as I know. Wow. I have found nobody, and I keep checking back, and I st- nobody is still working on it. I had a guy in what was then the Soviet Union asked me to come work with him back in, I guess, 1980s, something or other. I had a visa and everything ready to go. He had come to visit me here, didn't speak a word of English. His wife was a translator, <laughs> so she was the intermediary. And I was ready to go for, like, an initial three months, and he died. Oh, of cancer. Oh, no. I'd never seen him without a cigarette, ever. <laughs> and so he died of I'll lung cancer. It. So that put the kibosh on that. So other than him, nobody had ever shown interest in this particular problem. What's the question? The question that I was asking mm-hmm. is what forms of perinatal, which includes prenatal and early postnatal auditory mm-hmm. experience, fosters species-typical development in terms of how you respond to calls of your own species, okay? So we were working on the mallard maternal call, uh, which is what she uses to call the ducklings out of the nest within a day Mm -hmm. of hatching. If she walks away from the nest, they won't follow her. The call is critical. And so the person I was working with did most of the work on the acoustics of that. But while I was in the field, I discovered something that nobody else had witnessed and that was um, a hen on a nest that was in visual range of my blind saw when I put my head up from the blind. The blind was very short. It was called a Fensman hide. We got it from the UK. So I couldn't stand up in it, but I could put all my equipment and just sit on a chair like this and mm-hmm. be hidden. But, you know, I had to stand up once in a while. So I noticed that when I stood up, she could see me, and she would raise her head very high in a posture I'd never seen a duck do before. And I'm monitoring this, because I'm, I'm recording 24 hours a day on our tape recorder, and I have my headphones on, and I'm hearing a noise like I'd never heard before either. And it was very unduck-like. So I said, let me keep playing the game with this bird and see if I can figure out what's going on. So I go back in to the blind, I wait a few minutes, pop out, she does it again with her head, and I hear this sound again. Put two and two together, long story short, it turned out to be an alarm call. Yeah. If the ducklings were vocalizing while they were still on the nest and she did this, they would shut up like instantly, latency wow. of 0.0 seconds. And then when she stopped doing it, ultimately they would start to vocalize again. But they would stop vocalizing, they would stop moving, which I could tell because I didn't hear any leaves rustling all of a sudden. So this has to be an alarm call of some sort. And then it made sense. She viewed me as a predator. Mm-hmm. Right. And so we brought the problem into the lab, and that's what I spent all my time here doing at UConn with the Mallard maternal alarm call. And we teased apart factors that contributed to the development of this freezing response. Because most people would say that, oh, okay, it's genetic. Just label it genetic. There, you've explained it. Now we can go on to something else. 
You cannot explain anything by labeling it genetic. It's just a label. It doesn't get you anywhere any more than you could explain something by saying, well, it's environmental or experiential. That doesn't explain a thing. Mm -hmm. So I was teasing this problem apart every which way in terms of prenatal acoustics, early postnatal acoustics, and some other factors that turned out to be even more interesting at the, at the very end turned out to be really cool. So yeah, that's what that's what I was doing. Cool. Now is this an extension? I was reading up on your advisor, your PhD advisor was Gilbert Gottlieb, correct? Right, and the idea of probabilistic epigenesis. Good. Yeah. So epigenetics, right? Yeah. The idea that things above our genome level could influence our behavior, our physiological patterns, expressions of certain genes that are not changes of your genes specifically, but just the regulation of their activity or their expression. So, exactly. And so this type of call system then influences above the genomic level, the behavior of these birds downstream? Yes. Is that the point? That's the point at the level I was investigating it. Right. Uh, it could very well be activating certain genes because we know from other researchers, uh, zebra finches being one, blackbirds being another, that exposure to a particular call activates some genes that elaborate further development in the auditory system. Right. And unless they hear this call, which of course in nature they would, mm -hmm. it's a species typical call, whatever the call was. I think it was a male song yeah. actually. Then those genes will so, remain yeah, silent. Like in a predatory rich environment, you'd expect the animals to develop faster, they become reproductively viable earlier to then reproduce quicker so that they can escape a predation event. Yes. Right. And so I don't know if you observed long enough in this field work that ducks exposed to these maternal calls in the presence of a predator might have influence, I don't know, size or developmental speed of these ducks. I don't know if yeah, right, we never, your never work was just restricted to the initial setting of that. Tone. Yeah, no, we were just teasing apart the, um, the experiential factors makes sense. involved in the development of this behavior. Again, because people would just jump to the conclusion, well, if they all do it, it has to be sure. genetic. Mm. Well, everything's genetic, so that doesn't <laughs> explain. So I actually honed in on what specific experiences fostered the development, because if you remove those experiences, instead of freezing to the alarm call, they'll either ignore it or run up to the loudspeaker <laughs> as if it's something good. So, yeah. So it was devastating at the time, I'm sure, that your lab was essentially inadvertently shut down. Totally. But did it work out in the long run where you were now able to have all this time to, you know, dive headfirst into this new field of education, multimedia, and the interlap of these fields? Yeah. I mean, I had to figure out, well, now what am I going to do? Right. I tried finding jobs elsewhere, but I was already a full professor, and very few places are going to hire, number one, full professors, number two, in an obscure area like animal behavior. <laughs> you know, if you're lucky, you'll find, like, one person at a university teaching animal behavior. It'll either be in biology or psychology. Right. And uh, if they have one person, they usually don't need more than that. So that turned out to be an impossible feat. I contacted people I know everywhere in the country. <laughs> they said, oh, we would so much love to have you, but we can't do it. Yeah. So <laughs> The parallels are also really interesting in going from animal behavior to then also animal behavior in the context of humans in a classroom, right? Yes. Figuring out how human students behave in a lecture setting, how you can best tap into them. I don't know if you had any knowledge that you gained from your research that might have carried over or any ideas that you gleaned from the information you learned doing this field work, but it's just an interesting parallel that occurred once your research ended, it didn't really end. It just changed your model system. Correct, right? yes. 
but the kind of research I was doing was not amenable to any kind of translation sure. to what I was doing in the classroom. But you're absolutely right. Yeah, I mean, look, we're evolutionarily we're, we're all related. Too, right? All yeah. species are related. Um, some people might not want to think they're related to a cockroach, but hey, guess what? And they're probably smarter than you, you go are. Go far too. enough back. <laughs> My very first animal behavior project as a grad student was learning in earthworms at the University of Miami. Oh. And I had to fly in the earthworms from North Carolina, bio, Carolina <laughs> Biological Supply, popular supplier, and um, showed that they are capable of what's called positive reinforcement. The other studies that had been published at the time always dealt with shocks and punishment and showed, mm -hmm. okay, they'll learn to avoid this mm -hmm. stuff. I said, well, why don't you try rewarding it? <laughs> and then I'm thinking, what did I just say? What would you reward an earthworm with, for God's sakes? And yeah, so, what with? did you, yeah? Well, what I did. <laughs> they like to burrow. So I had them living in these big styrofoam paper cups, one worm per cup. And I had to buy some moist sphagnum moss. Well, it was sphagnum moss that I moistened. And they like that. So I created a runway maybe about that long, out of plexiglass, and the cup is at the very end. And if they made their way to the end of the runway, they would end up going right back into their cup. So I'm measuring how long it took them from the time I released them to start running and what their actual running times were to get back to the cup. And the running times kept increasing, the start times kept decreasing. Wow. They were learning, they were figuring out that, hey, if I do this and I do it quick, I can get back to my home cup, and I'm only an earthworm. That's really cool. So, yeah. Yeah, that was cool. Wow. So do you miss doing research? I mean, now that oh, yeah. you're retired, I know you work on music, but do you think you'd start to get a little bit of time back in the field instead of observing I don't see things? the opportunity. No. Yeah, that, that mm -hmm. would be really tough. I mean, I had so much necessary equipment. I had incubators all around yeah. my lab because we hatched the birds ourselves. Well, the incubators hatched sure. them. I didn't sit on the eggs for <laughs> Yeah, to get restarted on that literally at any other place would be nearly impossible. Right. And, I mean, I'm 70 going on 71. Is it September yet? Almost. Tomorrow Just about. or the day after. In September. So, <laughs> yeah, I really can't get back into it. It's not feasible. I'd love to. Yeah. But, but uh, you have your band, right? So I have the band. What is your band called? The band? Oh, my God. <laughs> Sultans of Stores. Okay. Yes. And it's all ex-UConn professors? Yes, Not ex, but us. retired UConn professors? Yeah, three of us. A bass player, a keyboardist uh, who does all kinds of... Uh -huh. his. He has a magic keyboard. I mean, he, he can do a whole orchestra <laughs> oh, in wow. that, and he does. And then me doing all the vocals. What did they teach? Uh, they were both chemistry professors. Oh, wow. Yeah, so the keyboardist actually had an honorary chair in chemistry. And he even uh, studied a little bit at Juilliard wow. uh, at one point wow. in his life. So, yeah, he's a top-notch musician. <laughs> Our bass player is great, yeah. another chemistry professor, now retired. So we're all good friends. How did the band get together? We got together because we were part of a larger faculty band. I think there were five or six of us. It was called Off Your Rockers. <laughs> and we played, you know, uh, fundraisers and played at parties and UConn events. Whoever wanted us, we would do because, you know, we're just a local band. Sure. What and genre? a cover band at that for uh, the most part. I, I've written my own songs. I copyrighted a bunch of them back in 2005. I recorded them and copyrighted them because some of them I thought were decent enough that if they become available and I made them available, Somebody I didn't want might. anybody ripping off mm -hmm. my songs and then making a fortune. <laughs> Are they available, the music from Sultans of Stores? Oh, I don't know if they were on iTunes. I know they're gone from iTunes. And I had them on some other site. They're probably not available. The ones I'm doing with Sultans of Stores, I'm putting up, actually all at once, come to think of it, on YouTube. 
YouTube yeah. does not do audio only, so I just had to create a video thing just of my turntable. Yeah, my it's yeah. the same the image oh, for okay. all of our songs. But the other two guys, one in particular, said they only would agree to do this on YouTube if they were listed as unlisted. So you can't search for these. Uh, I have to provide URLs, and they're glad with that as long as people can't search for them. <laughs> so I have to give people I URLs. Like you need a centralized website with all of the projects and all the things you've done just to, you know, sort of keep it in the mix, right? It's, That'd be cool. It yeah. would be cool, right? Just to yeah. build a website with all of the podcasts, all the episodes, the bands, all these projects that you don't want it to just slip and not be able to be accessible. I know. I worry more about the music we're doing now because I really think, yeah, I hate to brag, but <laughs> I think that this is turning out so cool. Right. They're, again, mostly covers. I've thrown in a couple of my songs and uh, the keyboardist did one of his as well. And you're the vocalist. Do you do... Harmonies, backgrounds, the oohs, the ahs, all this. Do you play an instrument as well? I play rhythm guitar very poorly. (laughs) Yeah. Just passable enough to Just be barely passable. In fact, I don't do it on all these songs, so if you hear a guitar, it's Bob on our keyboard uh, doing the. the, I do it on some of them, but yeah, not most of them. But yeah, I love doing that, and I have one to do when I get back home today. Really? Yeah. So. I guess before we wrap up, I mean, do you have any advice for UConn students now or UConn faculty now? Anything you can pass from all the wisdom you've learned over teaching for 37 years, being in science for 44 years? You know, what can you share with us that you can only gain from this experience? Well, for students, I would emphasize, you know, follow your passion. First, find your passion. If you don't know what it is, try different things. Try things that you might think might make you uncomfortable because you'll be surprised that what makes you uncomfortable or what you think will make you uncomfortable suddenly becomes so cool. Like me stepping in front of 700 students and I'm terrified at the thought of talking to two people, (laughs) let alone 700. And that became how I got into teaching big time and enjoyed it big time. Yeah, so find what makes you passionate. Try different things if you don't know. And if something doesn't, or if you're doing something because your parents tell you to do it, you know, you're adults now, do what you want to do with your life. I know that there can be problems with that, but it's still your life. And I've had advisees that were like pre-med that absolutely hated going into medicine, but dad insisted and I felt so badly for them, and I could tell they were miserable. I don't know ultimately what happened to some of these people, but that's not a good scenario. So that would be probably my best advice for university-age students at this time. Faculty, same thing. Try different things. Like my workshops, I told them, try different things. See what works best for you. Don't just stick to one thing. Mm -hmm. You know, maybe if you don't like straight lecture, then try different ways around it. Try the small group breakouts, and maybe that works for you. I tried it. It failed instantly. It didn't work for me. But, you know, what works for one person is absolutely not going to work for everybody. Yep. So you've got to find what works for you and develop it further. Spend time. Don't be afraid to invest as much time as necessary, even at the sacrifice of other things that you, you need to be doing. Somehow you can usually get everything done. It's a matter of apportioning your time. Yeah. And I'd say message to students for that, for that regard. Right. And, yeah. Uh, you'll find yourself and you'll make a lot of people happy beyond your your own limits. It's true. All right, David Miller, thank Excellent. you very much. Thank this you for great. having me. This has been great. Thank you, everyone, for listening to the podcast. Check out all of our material on iTunes or Spotify. You can check out our social media at InVivoPod for both Twitter and Instagram and email us with any comments or suggestions at invivo.podcast at gmail.com. I'm your host, Kyle Drake. You can find me on social media at underscore Kyle Drake. 
The people who make this possible are co-host Victor Kaye. You can find him as well at underscore Victor Kaye. Our editor is the awesome Kevin Ryan. He can be found at The Golden Whammy Bar. And our illustrator is Sarah Demers at underscore, 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 try Sarah top, underscore, underscore. We'd like to thank our funding from the Office of the Vice President for Research and the Office of the Provost. Thank you very much.